You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. So last Sunday night, um, as every year, the Grammy Awards were on. Now, I didn't watch them. Uh, I rarely ever watch any kind of award shows, but the reason this came up on my radar was actually this past week uh, as to a performance that occurred on that stage. And, and the reason it came up on my radar is some of the blogs that I, that I read and some of the um, Christian writers that I read throughout the week um, begin to talk about it. And as you know, in times past, down through the years, if you've watched any of this at all, that down through the years, both Grammy Awards or Academy Awards or um, um, you know, MTV Music Awards, they all have as their goal to have some shock value, right? They, they want to shock the culture. Now, when I was growing up, when I was coming up in, in teen years, Madonna was the one who always kind of brought that about, and, and Madonna would do something on the stage, and then the next week, everybody would be talking about it. Well, what I, what I was reading, I didn't quite make sense as to what was being talked about. I couldn't really make sense of what was going on because I, I'm not familiar with the artists. I'm not familiar with the songs. I'm not familiar with who's popular now. So I took it upon myself to pull up this particular performance at the Grammys that kept coming up in these blogs that I was reading. Now, some of you know exactly who I'm getting ready to mention. I don't know much about him. His name is Sam Smith. He performed a song that I think is appropriately titled, Unholy. He and what I thought was a female, there's a duet in this song, and and Sam Smith identifies as non-binary, which, as you know, means that he doesn't identify as male or female. He identifies as something in the middle, whatever that may be. Um, the, The woman that is part of this song, her name is Kim Petrus, I think it is, Petras, I don't know. But she's actually a man who now identifies as female. So just, just that alone was kind of a, a new thing in the award show. Uh, but was, what was interesting, and, and this is what er- had everybody stirred up, was the actual performance of this song called Unholy. And I watched the performance. And um, it was disturbing. <laughs> disturbing even from the context of what I watched You know, when I was younger with the performances that I saw, this takes it to a whole new level. Because what I witnessed on the stage at the Grammys through YouTube, what I witnessed was basically a satanic worship service that everyone was applauding. And not only that, uh, CBS, prior to the show airing, CBS had had tweeted out on their Twitter account, uh, we look forward, I don't think I have the wording exactly right, but basically they were saying, we look forward to worshiping with Sam Smith tonight. Hmm. I would not recommend you go watch it. (laughs) Some of you will because you're curious, but I I don't recommend it. Um, Just to give you a a real quick, I'm not going to spend much time on this because I don't want to stir your curiosity even more, but what I saw was this performer, Sam Smith, dressed in what would be described as a devil outfit, had a hat on with horns, eh, whatever. But around him was these people dressed as some kind of like priesthood and they're dancing around him, putting their hands all over him. And then on the stage is this man who identifies as a woman who's in a cage and very, very, very scantily dressed. The whole thing was just incredible. Um, And then for CBS to say, we're going to worship along with Sam Smith only could mean one thing because when you watched it, it was obviously satanic in nature. 
But, but really, none of that's what really got my attention. What really got my attention was how people were commenting about the show. Specifically, one particular person who is a host on MSNBC, her name is Joy Reid. I want you to read, I want to read a quote to you for what she said about that particular Grammy performance in relation to our culture at large. And particular, she was making a statement against those who disagree because not only uh, were people clapping and applauding it, but there was a whole lot of people, even people who are, who are not in the Christian faith, who were saying it was too far. And, and of course, I would say that the whole purpose of the performance was to get people talking. So Joy Reid decides to make a statement about not only the performance, but also about the response to it and the pushback that was being received. This is what she said, quote, it is a helpful reminder that despite the almost hysterical war, the right, now when she says the right, she's talking about the political right, is waging to take the culture back to the John Wayne era. They're not just losing. They literally cannot win. Cultural progression is relentless. Once people get a taste of modernity, they almost never go back willingly. Now there is some truth in what she's saying there. Let me, let me just kind of break down what she's saying. She's not only including just a political right, she's talking about those who view the world from a biblical worldview, and that was where a lot of the response was coming from. So she's lumping us, those who believe in the Bible, those who follow Jesus, lumping us into this category she calls the right. And then she says, those people, you and I, you and I who hold to the convictions of Scripture, you and I who hold to a morality that, that has an absolute north to it, that says there are absolutes that are right or wrong. She lumps us into this category, and here's the message that she has for you and the message she has for us. She says that we cannot win. She says that cultural progression is relentless, relentless, unrelenting. She says that once people get a taste of this, they will never go back. So your, your ideas, your position to try to move the culture back to a place of morality, to move your culture back to a place of absolute truth, let me just tell you, according to what she says, she says your, your task, well, it's hopeless. There's no way you're going to do it. Apparently, Joy Reid has not read the end of this book. Because while, while it will seem that for a while that the culture is winning, make no mistake about it, if you haven't seen it by now, you're going to see it in the weeks ahead, that ultimately the culture that is bowing to satanic works of darkness, bowing their knee to him, I want you to know where that's all going to lead. It's going to lead to everlasting destruction. So I want you to see that this morning. Oh, by the way, let me just take a little side note. Let me take a little, just a sidestep here for just a minute and meddle in your life. If this song is on your playlist, you might want to reevaluate where you are in your walk with Christ. Amen. I'm not meddling in your life. I'm just telling you that based on what I hear in this song, not only is it unholy, it's ungodly. And you need to evaluate where you're at with Jesus and whether you're following him or not. Here we have in Revelation chapter 11 a very difficult text because what we see is, is some controversial areas of the text of a, of a temple and witnesses, and we're going to talk about that. But what we've seen up to this point is that God is unleashing his wrath more and more and more, 
And what we're going to see in the weeks ahead is, is that God is going to absolutely pour out his judgment upon this planet. But at the same time, what we see is the opposition growing against God. And that opposition is going to reach its pinnacle under the leadership of one called the lawless one, the Antichrist. Now, we're going to take a lot of look, we're going to look at him quite closely in the weeks ahead. But for today, what I want you to notice is, is that how God continues to provide a witness, someone who is going to speak the truth. And I want you to see today in chapter 11 how that opposition to that truth, well, how they decide to handle things. My hope is, is that you're beginning to see a connection between what's going to be happening in the future and what's happening right now. What I'm hoping you're beginning to see is there's a, a link between where our culture is now and where the culture will be at this point in, in our future when God begins to wrap all things up. As a matter of fact, Paul, writing to the church at Thessalonica in chapter 2, second letter, chapter 2, that whole chapter is dedicated to the idea of this coming lawlessness one, this, this antichrist. And there in verse 7, he says something very interesting. You don't have to turn over there. Just remember this. In verse 7, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says this, the mystery of lawlessness is already here. Paul said that in his day. In other words, Paul said that this lawless one that will come, the Antichrist, that, that the, the lawlessness was already in the culture at Paul's day. Well, if that was true in Paul's day, it is absolutely true today. And the fact is, is that what we see going on in our culture right now very well is setting the stage for how God is going to wrap this thing up. And, of course, that leads us to a, another possibility that what we're reading in Revelation is actually not that far off in the future. So I have a question for you that I want you to wrestle with. How far are you willing to go? What are you willing to do? Are you going to be willing to take a stand? Are you going to be willing to say unashamedly that, that I follow Jesus and I believe in the truth, I believe in this old book that everyone else in the world says is outdated and needs to be you know, updated or cast aside. I've got to ask you, what are you willing to do? Are you willing to stand? And are you standing now? Jesus said this to his disciples when he was walking with them in Matthew chapter 10. He looks at his disciples and he and he's going to send them out. He's going to send them out into the communities to, to be a witness for him. And he says, before he sends them out, here's what he says. He says, I am sending you, my sheep, out among the wolves. That's a pretty clear statement, is it not? I mean, sheep among wolves, we know what happens there. It's not pretty. And Jesus said to his disciples, then, he says, I'm going to send you out among people who do not want to hear what you have to say who may respond with anger and hatred. They may respond with violence. They may shut you down. They may run you out of town. But nonetheless, I'm still sending you as sheep out among wolves. Jesus didn't say to the church, I'm going to send my sheep out among sheep. In other words, it's not the goal of the church to sit around with a bunch of other sheep and talk about how bad the culture is. Jesus says that he's sending us as sheep out into a culture that is filled with wolves. And as a Christ follower of Christ, you've got to accept that mission. And to do anything less, well, that's disobedience. So what I want you to see with these witnesses today, I want you to see how these witnesses are responded to. I want you to see where the culture is at this point. 
And then I want you to, to wrestle with the idea that we're not too far from this. And then you have to ask yourself, what am I going to do? What's going to be my response? Look at verse 1, chapter 11. He says, then I was given a measuring rod. John says he was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told to rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months, or three and a half years. So right off at the very beginning here, we're faced with the first challenge of how to understand this text. Because John sees uh, a rod or a reed being given to him, almost I guess we can think of it like a yardstick, and John is being told to engage in this vision, in this thing that he's seen, and go and measure the temple. Now, the, the first problem we have here is what temple is he measuring? And now it's at this point, <laughs> commentators go all over the place and in trying to define what this temple is. And trust me, I looked at all the, the theories and I looked at all of the scriptures they used to back it up, and, and there's some really smart people out there who hold a different position than I hold, and that's okay. But here's where I came down. I believe that John is measuring an actual real temple in Jerusalem that he's seeing in this vision. Well, you have to ask the question at this point, well, there is no temple. So right now in Jerusalem, if you go to the highest point where the temple used to sit, remember I've told you many times when we were working with different texts that back in the day of, of Solomon's temple, no matter where you were traveling from in, in that part of the country, that if you're heading towards Jerusalem, the first thing you would see even miles before you got there was Solomon's temple at the pinnacle of the city of Jerusalem. And it was outlined with gold and you could see it shimmering and reflecting in the sunlight. And people were in awe of that, of that temple even before they got to the gates of the city. But now if you go to Jerusalem, and I've never had the opportunity to go, but now if you go to Jerusalem, you can't go to that pinnacle. You can't go to that top spot unless you are Muslim. And the reason for that is, is because at the pinnacle of that place where the temple used to sit is something called the Dome of the Rock. And the Dome of the Rock is one of the top three revered locations of the religion of Islam. And they believe that Muhammad ascended back to God or Allah in their mind from that particular point. And unless you are Muslim, you cannot even enter that area. If you are Jewish and you want to go into that area, if they catch you praying at all, they will arrest you immediately. There's all kinds of history as to why the Dome of the Rock is sitting there. I'm not going to get into that. But what you need to understand is there is no temple in Jerusalem. All that is left is something called the Western Wall. The Western Wall is a wall that's about 180 feet, and the people pray there. And that's all that's left of Herod's temple is a foundation wall, and they pray there. So if you go down through history, you'll find that the Solomon built the temple first. You remember, David wanted to build it, but Solomon ends up building it. Eventually, it's destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Eventually, about 40-some years later, King Cyrus, I'm sorry, 70 years later, King Cyrus allows the temple to be rebuilt under Zerubbabel. So the temple is rebuilt, and then over about 400 years, the temple comes in either, it's either built up or it's torn down, depending on what Gentile ruler's in charge. Then we come to King Herod, and King Herod takes on the, the task of fixing the temple, getting it back to its original size and original glory in 39 B.C. He builds this temple, and it is incredible what he's able to build. And that temple remains there 
all the way until 70 AD. And in 70 AD, under the Roman ruler Titus, he goes in and destroys the temple yet again. Now, Jesus predicted that event when he said to his disciples one day in the city, he said, you see the temple? There will be a day coming where every stone will be thrown down. And in 70 AD, just as Jesus predicted, the temple was destroyed. So we have no temple at this point. So the question is, how is John measuring a temple in the holy city if no temple exists? I believe, and I believe the scripture teaches us, that that temple will be rebuilt during the tribulation period. And I believe it will be under the direction of, get this, the Antichrist himself. I believe he's the one that's going to bring it all together, that the Muslims and the Jews are going to be able to work this out and that they're going to be allowed to build a temple back in Jerusalem. And that is the very temple that John is measuring. God says to him, measure the temple, but don't worry about the outer court. That outer court, which includes the city of Jerusalem, is going to be trampled. It's going to be trampled by the nations, by the Gentiles, for three and a half years. Look at verse 3. In verse 3, he says, I'm going to give authority to two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, or again, three and a half years, and they will be clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So now we, have, now we move into the next problem we have to deal with. So there's going to be a temple rebuilt. Now when we start talking about the Antichrist, we're going to go back and we're going to go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the chapter I just quoted to you just a moment ago. And in that chapter, it says that the Antichrist one day is going to enter this temple and he's going to take his seat in that temple and declare himself as God. That's why I believe this is a literal temple that will be rebuilt. Then as things begin to get really bad, God protects the Temple Mount. This area that John measures out basically says to us that within those temple walls, God is going to protect that place. But outside of those walls, in the court of the Gentiles and even the city itself, it is going to be absolutely ransacked. And God is going to provide two witnesses in that city who are going to prophesy and speak the words of God and speak the truth to a world that is completely cast into chaos. So these two witnesses, who are they? Well, there's at least 20 options that I read about as to who these two guys are. The most popular would be Elisha and Elijah or Moses and Elijah. That's probably the two most popular ones. Or Enoch and Elijah, I read that one too. I really don't know. The text doesn't tell me. I know that when I look at what they do, there are definitely some correlations between what these witnesses do versus what I see some of the other prophets doing. We also know that that Malachi said that there would be a day when Elijah would return. Of course, that was John the Baptist in one sense, but it also wasn't completely fulfilled there. So it may be that this is Elijah, but here's the point. I don't want to get down in the weeds and try to identify who these two are. What's more important is what they're doing and the response they get from their culture. Look at verse 5. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he was doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, no rain would fall. They have the power to strike the earth with every kind of plague. So here we have two rather strange individuals that God has led to his holy city. And in that holy city, they are proclaiming the truth of God. It may be that they are proclaiming 
what John has revealed, that judgment is coming, judgment is going to fall, and if they don't repent, they will be separated from God for eternity. It may be that they are sharing and spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. They very well may be proclaiming that this Messiah of the Old Testament is none other than Jesus Christ and that he's going to return. I don't know exactly what their message is, but here's what I do know. Whatever message they are sharing is deeply offensive to the culture in which they're sharing it. We now live in a culture that is telling me and telling you that my words can be just as harmful as a weapon. And the idea is, is that those who speak the truth, in other words, if, if I disagree with you, if I disagree with your worldview and I'm not being mean or angry about it, I simply look at you and say, get, get this, I don't believe that you can be non-binary. If, if I were to meet Sam Smith, I never will. But if I were to look at Sam Smith, I would treat him with kindness. I would treat him, I would treat him as a human being who bears the image of God. But I would look at Sam Smith and say, Sam, I'm sorry, there's only two genders. But more than likely, what would happen in that response is, is that I would be accused of hate. I would be accused of harm. I'd be accused of attacking him when it's simply, I'm not attacking him. In fact, I want him to know the truth. But I would be cast as the enemy. You've had this experience online. Many of you have. Social media, you talk about what you believe, and next thing you know, you get some interesting messages in your inbox. These two witnesses, what is their crime? What are they doing? They're simply standing in the holy city proclaiming the truth. Well, we can't have that. Because what's going to happen is, is they are going to be attacked over and over again. And for three and a half years, these witnesses have the power to consume people with fire now. This, this is not something to be played around with. Can you imagine how that's going to play in the news? Just, just, I mean, just, just take how our culture is now, and let's just imagine for a moment that, that, that when this time comes, remember, it's going to be streamed live all over the world. You can just imagine the news report. Well, here we are in uh, the holy city, and we have these two men, and they are saying just awful things. They're saying hateful things. They're seeing things like, Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. How dare they say something? And we can tell that the crowd is getting more and more angry, and you can even imagine the news reporters saying, somebody needs to do something. It's not hard to imagine, is it? And people are watching this live, and then all of a sudden, fire falls and consumes someone who tries to attack them, and now the world is losing their mind. How dare them take the life of somebody who disagrees with them? Something must be done. Well, after three and a half years, three and a half years, something does happen. But all I want you to notice is that while these witnesses are proclaiming the truth, they are divinely protected by God. And get this, it's no different for you. For the moment you came to faith in Jesus Christ, and I've quoted this verse to you many times, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says that you are created in Christ for good works. You are his workmanship, and that God has created a path for you to walk. And in that path you have to walk, it's good works that brings glory and honor to him. And the reality is, is that just like these two witnesses are going to be divinely protected until the day comes when they are taken out, so it is with you. From the time you put your faith in Jesus until the time you die, you have a path to walk. And get this, you are divinely protected until you finish the course you have to walk. There is no harm that is going to come to you. There is no way that this world is going to take you out. You have divine protection until that moment God says, your time is up. Our days are measured out. From the moment you were born until the day you die. And in between there, when you put your faith in Jesus, 
God said, I'm going to take care of you so that you walk the path that I've given you to walk. So just as these witnesses have divine protection until they finish the course in which they've been given, guess what? So do you. So do you. Now notice what happens as the crowd turns on these two witnesses. Verse 7, and when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit. Now, this is the Antichrist. Now, in the context of chapter 11, the Antichrist has already come to power. They know who he is. He's already leading the world, but we haven't talked about him yet. In the chapters ahead, we're going to unpack who he is, his kingdom, and what we're going to see as far as this beast that rises. But for now, this beast has already got power. This, this Antichrist has already got influence. And guess what happens? He makes war on these two witnesses. As people begin to see something needs to be done about these two men, who are speaking such, in their minds, vile things. Something's got to be done. Who's going to do it? Well, everybody that approaches them, you know, is, is, is hurt. Everyone that approaches them gets burned up with fire. They have the ability to stop rain. Well, this Antichrist who already claims to be God, he will do something. So now you have this, this great conflict that is set, right? You have, you have these two witnesses representing God, speaking to the truth of God. You have a culture that hates the truth and says something has to be done. Well, along comes the Antichrist, and he begins to make war upon these two. Look what happens. The beast that rises from the bottom of the spit will make war on them, will conquer them, and will kill them. But I would add to you, not until they finish the job God gave them to do. Three and a half years, nobody can touch them. At the end of that three and a half years, this Antichrist comes against them. He's able to conquer them, and he's able to kill them. And this will be live streamed all over the earth. It says here in this text that nations, people groups will be able to see this. Forty years ago, 30 years ago, we had no idea how this text would be fulfilled. I mean, think about it. We had TV, but rarely ever did you see anything live, like a, like a major event. It just happened to be happenstance that you would see it, that someone would have a, a camera that would record it. Not anymore. The internet, that phone that you carry in your pocket, don't you know there'll be people standing everywhere in the streets of the holy city filming as the Antichrist takes up the mantle to destroy these two men. And everybody's going to be watching it. And everybody, I would imagine everybody's waiting to see this battle between this leader and these guys who claim to represent God. Well, the Antichrist overtakes them. He kills them. In verse 8, it says their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, symbolically that is called Sodom and Egypt. Now notice this. We saw where John was to mark off the temple. And then God says, don't touch anything, don't measure anything outside of the temple because that's all going to become overrun by the Gentiles. Down here we see that over time what has happened is the city of Jerusalem, the city that was considered the holy city, everything outside that temple mount, everything outside of that area has completely turned against God. Everything in the streets, everything that is happening in that city is just like, and it's symbolized as Sodom and Egypt. Get that. We know a lot about Sodom, right? That city was destroyed because of their immorality, particularly sexual immorality. But then he also says that this city is also just like Egypt. What do we know about Egypt? We know that they were hard-hearted, that no matter what God did, no matter what plague they poured out, Egypt just continued to reject the truth. So when, when God says here that this great city is now called Sodom and Egypt, that tells us just how bad things have gotten in that city. These bodies are going to lay in the street. And they're going to lay there for three and a half days. 
Now get this, in that text, one of the most amazing parts of this is, is that the world begins to celebrate. They're having parties. It even says that they were exchanging gifts. You have like a, I don't know, like, like an unholy Christmas going on here. I don't know what this is. I mean, it's like, it's like we're going to celebrate, we're going to exchange gifts because the two witnesses are dead. Now what was their only crime? They spoke the truth. I thought we were going to be a tolerant society. I thought, I thought tolerance was the, was the end all of all things, right? Tolerance now is what, what we're being told is the epitome of, of acceptance and love for other people. But apparently that tolerance is only good for certain groups of people. For those who speak against the culture, for those who say, hey, I don't share your worldview. Apparently tolerance isn't included for us. Have you noticed that? Well, guess what? It gets a whole lot worse because they didn't tolerate these guys at all and they killed them in the streets, cold blood. They, were, they weren't doing anything other than teaching what God's word said and when people tried to attack them, they defended themselves, well, by calling down fire. Pretty impressive. So they're exchanging gifts. They're partying. And you know what the world is saying, right? The world is saying, yes, we silenced them. Yes, the Antichrist won. Yes, he must be God because he did something no one else could do. We have now silenced those witnesses who were stirring up the world and preaching lies. Just this week, it's amazing how much you can learn in one week. Uh, it's just this week, same, same kind of thing. I, I saw something come up, and again, it was in one of my blogs that I read. It's a guy by the name of Albert Moeller. He's the He's the uh, dean at Southern Seminary, and he puts out a really good weekly blog, and I was reading some of it. Something came up that, that alerted me to something the FBI was doing. Interesting. So I read this this week as a news article, and somebody within the FBI, the most powerful police agency in America, there was a document that was leaked out that said that within the realms of the, the power structure of the FBI and the higher realms of leadership, they have finally come up with a way to take and call Catholics, those who practice Catholicism, have come up with a way to label them as extremists and be able to arrest them simply because they practice their religion. Now, the article had to do completely, or the leak had to do completely with Catholicism, but while we are very different in our beliefs as far as evangelicals compared to Catholicism, make no mistake about it, if they can label Catholicism as, well, extreme terrorists, we're not far behind, folks. Matter of fact, it's already kind of happening. For the longest time, we've been able to enjoy freedom of religion as part of our founding documents in the Constitution. What that says is it says that I can practice my religion in this country, in the public, not just within a building, but in the public, without the fear of, of uh, any kind of repudiation or any kind of pushback from the government itself. I, I have the right to practice my faith. I have, the, I have the right to go on any street corner to preach if I want to. I have the right to share the gospel. As long as I'm not violating personal property, I can go out in this community and I can proclaim the love of Jesus, regardless of what anybody thinks about it. Most of the world doesn't have that freedom, but we do. But it's under attack on every side on every corner. And you know why? You know why that is? It's because the truth that we have and what we, what we believe apparently is a threat to our culture. Lost person, I want to speak to you just a moment. For those watching online, for, you, for those of you here who've never put your faith in Jesus, I, I, need to, I want to speak directly to you for just a moment. 
Because you've got something you've got to wrestle with on the inside. And here's, here's what I need you wrestling with. I want, to, I want to plant this seed in your heart, and I hope it, hope it disturbs you for the next week. I hope, it, I hope it causes you to lose sleep. I don't mean that in a harmful way. I just need you to come to a place where you realize that Jesus Christ is king. Have you ever wondered why it is that when you look at the, the grand scheme of the world as far as faiths that are being persecuted, have you ever noticed how that there's one faith that's being persecuted more than any other on the face of the earth? Have you ever noticed how that in countries like Iran and Kuwait and, and Jordan, these places where it is very dangerous to live out your faith, that these people can be killed and beheaded simply because of what these witnesses were doing, the same thing these faithful people are doing is simply sharing the truth? Have you ever wondered why it is that Christian bakers end up in Supreme Court? Christian photographers end up in Supreme Court when there are other religions that hold to the same viewpoints we do concerning marriage, gender, homosexuality. There are other religions who hold the same viewpoints, yet you never see them in the news. You never see them persecuted. You never see them being drug off to court. And lost person, I need you to wrestle with this. Maybe it's because the only truth that is being shared in this society is the truth that comes from God's word lived out by a follower of Jesus Christ. And if that's true, lost person, then what Jesus said is absolutely true. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, and no man comes unto the Father except through him. Amen. Wouldn't it make sense? Would it not make sense that Satan is going to attack where truth is? Wouldn't it make sense that, that Satan would want to silence those who hold to a viewpoint that is right? A lost person, you've got to wrestle with that. And I want you to. Because what I hope you'll do is you'll come to the realization that this thing you've been running from all your life is actually completely, entirely true. These witnesses are simply killed for sharing the truth. But look what happens next. They're celebrating, exchanging gifts. They're having parties where no doubt we're having some hot wings and some pizza and we're all celebrating the fact that these two awful witnesses who were speaking the truth are now dead. Look what happens. It says, um, let's pick it up in verse 10, and those who dwell on the earth, they will rejoice over them. They'll make merry. They'll exchange presents for the two prophets have been a torment to those who were dwelling on the earth. Get that. Them speaking the truth have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Verse 11, but after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on all those who saw them. You know when the party comes to an end? When two dead men stand up. And get there again, people are streaming this all over the world. These bodies that laid in the street, no doubt they are abusing these bodies. They're kicking them. These guys have been dead for three and a half days. They're showing the signs that, look, there's no doubt here these men are dead. That's why everyone's celebrating. The Antichrist has had his victory, and everybody on the world, everybody in the world has seen it and watched it and celebrated it. And then all of a sudden, that same video stream live from the city, I can imagine a news instructor standing there, and she's gloating, or he's gloating over the fact that these two guys have been dead by their champion, the Antichrist. And as he's talking, these two guys stand up. Microphone drops and people start to scatter at that point. But wait, there's more. Verse 12, then they, they, then they heard a voice, a loud voice from heaven saying to them, the two witnesses, come up here. <laughs> it's a rare thing 
in Scripture when, when God speaks, and I believe this is God speaking, it's a, it's a rare thing when God speaks and, and, and lost people hear it. But here we have the city that has been turned over into ruins like Sodom in Egypt. And, and those people who have hated these two men have now seen them stand up, and then all of a sudden there's a voice from heaven that says, hey guys, come up here. And all of a sudden gravity turns loose of these two guys, and they begin to ascend into the heavens, and you could drop a pin you could drop a pin in Jerusalem on that day and hear it drop. Because everyone there is faced with the reality there's a God in heaven. And God's not dead. They are struck with fear. Verse 13. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed. 7,000 people were killed in that earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Well, it's about time. I mean, plagues have been dropping on the planet. All kinds of things have been happening. God speaks from heaven. And there's some group of people, not all of them, there's some who recognize that God is not dead and God is not the Antichrist. It's that voice that just spoke from heaven. Who else could do such a thing? These witnesses ascend back to heaven. And I want you to see now the scene shifts from earth to heaven. Verse 14. Actually, pick it up verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. Now, we've been talking about those seal judgments. Those seal judgments, if you remember, we went through one through six, where God is just pouring out judgment. We get to the seventh, and the seventh kind of hits a pause, and the seventh seal then expands into the first trumpet. And then we have six trumpets and where we see God again unleashing incredible wrath. And then we have kind of a pause where we're waiting on the seventh trumpet to blast. Well, now we've arrived. That, that interlude between chapter 10 and up to 11, chapter 11, verse 15, now we have the seventh trumpet that is going to sound. This seventh trumpet is going to eventually lead to the next set of judgments, which is called the bowl or vile judgments. Now, before we get to those judgments, we're going to take a look at what was happening at Christmas time? Get this, we're going to look at what Satan was doing behind the scenes when Jesus Christ was born. That's next week. We're going to look at the Antichrist and his kingdom. But for now, I want you to see what's happening in heaven. Because what's happening in heaven right at this point? Listen to this. There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever if you've ever prayed the model prayer, I don't use the Lord's Prayer to title that prayer Matthew 6 because I believe the Lord's Prayer is John 17. But the model prayer where Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, if you remember how that prayer goes, he says, Our God, uh, my Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You've probably prayed that prayer thousands of times. And you've probably thought about that, that phrase. What does it mean for God's kingdom to come, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, let me point you to chapter 11 because this is exactly where that prayer is answered. 
It was answered when Jesus was born. It was answered when Jesus began his kingdom. It was, it was answered as Jesus heals and as Jesus is crucified and as Jesus is resurrected. All of that is part of that answer of God's kingdom coming. But notice in chapter 11, the angels, the elders in heaven, they look at what's going on and they're all anticipating something huge. Now this is where I use my imagination a little bit. But now where we are in the book of Revelation, what's getting ready to happen next? Once we get through talking about the Antichrist and his kingdom and Satan and all that he's up to, we're eventually going to get back into these sealed judgments. And they're going to come, I mean, not sealed judgments, but vile judgments. And they're going to come fast. And the next thing you know, God's going to wrap this thing up. I believe what's happening in the throne room of heaven at this point is there is celebration. There is worship. There is excitement because Jesus is getting ready the, the, those in heaven who are going to ride with him at this point in history, at this point in the kingdom, those who are getting ready to ride, guess what they're doing? They're getting the horses ready. Jesus is getting on his sash that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's getting ready to come down to this earth and for once and for all, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and everyone in heaven is anticipating this moment. The martyrs who are under the altar who've been crying out to God, God, when will you avenge us? Well, that time is coming, folks, and it's right on the cusp and the people in heaven are celebrating it. Because my king is going to come, and he's going to reign with power and authority. And those in heaven are going, listen to what they say. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small, and for the destroying, the destroyers of the earth. So... In heaven, there is great anticipation because Jesus is getting ready to ride on that white horse. The battle of Armageddon is about to happen. Those who have positioned themselves against God, they are going to fall, and Jesus Christ is going to reign. So Joy Reed and all those who take the position that this mess is going to continue the way that it is for on and on and on, let me give you notice right now that my king will put down everyone who puts themselves against him. Everyone. This mess will come to an end. And furthermore, and furthermore, he will be worshiped for all eternity and only those who've put in their faith in him will be able to join with the saints around God's throne, period. There is no other word. There is no other way. Notice what it says. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within his temple. The Ark of the Covenant. Man, we haven't talked about the Ark of the Covenant in a very long time. This is not the original Ark of the Covenant, the one that Moses built. I believe this is the one that it was based off of, the one that is in heaven. Remember, when the tabernacle was built and the Ark was built, those were all copies of the originals. And notice when, when, when we look at heaven in, in, this, in this imagery, the temple is open. There's no curtain separating us from the most holy place. Jesus Christ and what he has done for us has given us the opportunity to be in the presence of God to be redeemed, to be reconciled to our Father. You see, everything that chapter 11 tells us is that God is not dead. He is ruling with power and authority. And there's nothing for you to worry about, especially if you decide today, maybe for the 1500th time, that I'm going to choose today for whom my family is going to serve, and it's Jesus Christ, and there will be no others. I will not bow to the culture. I will not bow to the bloggers. 
I will not bow to anyone else, but I will bow the knee to my king. And maybe once again, after many times, or maybe today for the very first time, that I'm going to put my faith in this king who will rule with power and authority. There's a story about Martin Luther that I've always liked. Martin Luther, the reformer. Sorry for my voice, it's about to go. So we're going to try to land the plane here, but I'm going to get this out. Martin Luther, the reformer, would often have times where he would, where he would struggle with, with depression and anxiety, and there'd be times where he would become despondent, where he would just lock himself away for hours and even days. Martin Luther was, was married to the love of his life named Katie, and Katie would try to minister to Martin Luther during those times when he would be despondent, and, and, and understand that Martin Luther was a wanted man. He, they were wanting to arrest him and put him to death for what he believed and what he and what he was speaking. And not only that, but for what he did when he, when he nailed those 95 theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg in Germany, he was a wanted man. So there were times where he was just broken. Well, there, this is one time in Martin Luther's life where it had just been going on and on and on. He was in this place of darkness and Katie was having a hard time kind of reaching him and speaking truth into his life. And so Katie didn't know what to do. Well, then Katie has a, a kind of a stroke of genius. She goes into her room and she finds a dress that she would wear to a funeral. It's called the clothes of mourning. And the only time you wore those clothes is if you were going to a funeral. Somebody had died. So Katie puts on the dress and she begins to work around the house and eventually Martin comes out of his room and he's walking down the hall and he looks and sees Katie dressed in her funeral clothes. And Martin's kind of startled, startled for a moment. He says, well, Katie, you have on, you have on your funeral clothes. And so she said, so, so Martin Luther asked her, said, well, well, who has died? And Katie looked at Martin Luther and she said, well, apparently, and this is my words, kind of paraphrasing, but, but Martin, apparently God is dead based on the way you're acting. And that shut Martin Luther enough for him to break out of that despondency. Because there's one thing Martin Luther knew, he knew that God was not dead. And yet, in our culture today, we have less and less people who are willing to bring Jesus up. And yet, in our culture, within those who, who, who follow Jesus, as we engage in the culture in our jobs and when we go out into this world, we are beginning to listen to those voices who are saying that we need to keep quiet and we need to allow the culture to go the direction it's going. And the more we do that, the more we're living at our faith as though God is dead. Does that describe you? That's why I started where I started because I think today, right now, this moment, today you need to choose whom you're gonna serve. And quite frankly, if it's the culture, if, if, you, if you are going to align with the culture, then, then, then have all of it. Go after it with everything in you. Go ahead. But if it's Jesus Christ, if that is your Lord and Savior, then choose today that you're going to serve him. Choose today that you're going to follow him and no longer be afraid of what those people are saying about you. But just simply choose one or the other. Because this in-between stuff... It's hurting the witness of the church. It's making you look like you've joined the culture. Choose this day whom you're going to serve. Father in heaven, 
I love you. And I love this fellowship. I love this church. And sometimes, Father, oftentimes, love has to come in the, the form of a truth that is, well, kind of confrontational. But Father, I pray that these people would know that not only do I love them, that you love them, that you've done everything in the world to show them the path. Nothing else is needed. So Father, I pray the day they would choose. If the culture is beginning to have more influence on them than, than your word, I pray that you put your finger on that in their heart today. The reality is, Father, that the gospel will never be accepted by the culture. The cross will never be acceptable in the public square. There, there will never be a time where the world's going to embrace us and our message because you have sent us out as sheep among wolves. But Father, we are to not be afraid. We are not to shrink back into our church buildings. We are not to hide our faith. We're not to be ashamed of you. So Father, give us boldness, give us clarity, give us wisdom, but above all, give us courage to having done all that we may stand. For the one far from you this morning, from the one that's caught in this place of undecision. Father, the seed that, that I sowed earlier about the fact that Christianity is under attack and why is that? I pray that that would just completely unnerve them to the point that they lift up their eyes and see you in all of your glory and beauty. And Lord, that you would change them from the inside out. The day is the day of salvation, not tomorrow, for tomorrow may or never come. It's right now. May we choose today who we're going to serve. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's worship. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.